Welcome to the program. We have some breaking news coming out from south of the border just now. President Donald Trump has fired John Bolton as White House National Security Advisor. This just coming out just in the last couple of moments via tweet. The President of the United States saying, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. That is breaking news. We will keep on top of that and bring more for you. Obviously, that will reverberate throughout the course of the day. But I begin on the Alan Carter radio program with this plea. Can we just behave a little? There is a Twitter video that got me all riled up this morning. And what it shows is it shows a police officer giving a cyclist a ticket And here's what it says. Excuse me, traffic services. How does giving cyclists a $110 ticket on a side street help keep us safe? Meanwhile, the officer ignores cars running stop signs, question mark. This happened in the Christie Pitts area near the Essex Public School. I will tell you that the video, which is up on my Twitter feed, it does not show evidence of cars running stop signs. But the person who tweeted this, Nigel Barif, joins me on the line. Hi, Nigel. Were you the cyclist that got a ticket here? I'm sorry. Did you actually get a ticket, no, Nigel? No, no, no. I was walking. I'm. I was walking my four-year-old son. He started full-day kindergarten last week to school, um, and I observed um, the police officer. And at first, I was. I was very. I was very excited because on that street, I. I observe on a regular basis cars that just, you know, they they roll stop that stop sign. And my son and I crossed that crosswalk along with many other parents and their children in the area. So I thought that's what he was there for, to, like, keep an eye on that. And then, you know, when I was coming back, I I see him giving this ticket to... the cyclist, and and there was another cyclist prior to that that I that had, I, I asked what was going on, and she told me that he he was giving out a hundred and ten dollar tickets to these cyclists. And do you know what the cyclist had done wrong? The the police they said that the they gave her uh, a ticket because she was going the wrong way on a one way street. Well, of course that's that. Do you think that the cyclist should get a ticket for that? I, I, I think that we all should be following the, 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 the laws. But what my concern is, is a, and especially walking my four-year-old, is when I'm seeing these cars that are blowing by stop signs. That, that you know, I've, I've just never heard of a cyclist killing somebody by driving, by riding their, their bike the wrong way on a, on a one-way street. Like, I just, I've never heard that. But what I do see and what we've heard regularly is about pedestrians being killed because cars are ignoring stop signs. And so that's what was my, that's my worry. It's, it's more about what, what, what needs to be the focus, especially around um, school, school zones, you know. So that, that was my particular worry there with my four-year-old. Nigel Barif, uh, you live in the Christie Pitts area, I understand? Yes, I do. And he tweeted this morning a video of a cyclist getting a ticket and says that the priorities should be different. Nigel, thank you so much for being on the program. Have a great day. Thank you. So what do you think about that? If we do have, and I think there is no question that we have a serious problem with pedestrian fatalities and cars in this city. So... 
Should police officers be handing out tickets to cyclists who do things like going the wrong way? I mean, obviously, that is against the law. You shouldn't do that, and there should be a consequence for it. But in a, in a city where people are losing their lives almost daily, is this where we want our focus to be? Interesting Good thing to think about. Take a look at that uh, video if you get a moment. Again, you can follow me on Twitter, A. Carter Global. Can't we just all get along? From cars and cyclists to the halls of power. Here is the now famous and outgoing Speaker of the House of the United Kingdom. Order! Order! That is James Burko has announced that he is stepping down and he has become famous around the world internationally for that, that shout of order. And now there is a shout of a similar kind coming from Ontario's Speaker of the House. Now... You may know we have precisely the same system, and even though it's a provincial legislature, it works just the same way as our federal legislature works, and it works essentially the same way as the British Parliament works. It's exactly the same. So the, the role of the Speaker is to keep order, and sometimes you got to shout it out. Well, this report this morning from Rob Ferguson in the Toronto Star that the Speaker of the House in Ontario, Speaker Ted Arnott, has written a big memo, and without naming names, he singles out, quote, repeated and contrived standing ovations in the legislature's daily question period, noting that they, quote, do not lead us to a higher standard of parliamentary decorum. So what's going on here, you see, is the Speaker of the House, the Provincial House, is warning all of the parties that when we come back, when you come back to the House after the federal election, after the dust settles and that, can we not just get along? This is what else it says in the memo. Quote, all of us enjoy a good-natured or humorous interjection during debate. Isn't that true? Don't we all just enjoy, oh, that was a good-natured or humorous injection right there. However, members understand that when it comes to being mean, excessively rude, or nasty, Ontario's voters are not impressed favorably. That is part of a memo from Speaker Ted Arnott. Oh, And then we have this. An announcement this morning that the Ontario government, through Metrolinx, has now ordered 36 more train cars, those bi-level cars, those go-big-transit cars, train cars, from guess who? Anybody? Bombardier. Now, what possibly could go wrong with that? The agreement will enable Metrolinx to add 31 standard and five accessible cars to its existing order, which will provide more than 6,000 additional seats for Go Transit customers. I'm just going to say maybe don't hold your breath on those cars coming in on time. And you may ask yourself, why is it, why do we go back to Bombardier in this situation? We 
Obviously, there must be some kind of procurement process here, right? Well, did you know this? That in the province of Ontario, and including the city of Toronto, there is a provision, a Canadian content provision, that requires 25% of any rail car to be Canadian-made. That means Canadian parts. That means assembled here. So essentially what it means is that you cannot be a German company like Siemens or another international company, bid for this, build it in China, put it on a boat, and ship it over here. You can't do that. That's not allowed. The legislation says you can't do that. Now, other international companies have come here and actually built assembly warehouses to be able to get past this 25% rule. But you ask yourself, why is it that we keep going back to Bombardier? Because the law puts its thumb on the scales and says 25%. Well, Bombardier says, I got a 25%. You kidding me? I got a warehouse right here at Thunder Bay. You interested? You want to come over? Easy peasy. You're an international company. Perhaps you can bid lower. That is a problem for the province of Ontario. And there will be those who say those are that's jobs. At the end of the day, that is jobs. And that when it comes to public procurement, public money, that a portion of our public money should go towards jobs in our backyard. So that if a thing is a dollar, that we as a community, as a society, say, I'll pay a buck twenty-five if that means Bob gets a job. Do you agree with that? Or is it lowest price wins? Just a bit of perspective for you to think about. Can't we just all get along, please? When we come back on the Alan Carter Radio Program, scooters, oh my! Priya Sam will join us about all of this worry about whether or not we should have these dockless e-scooters here. You think that cyclist was ticked going the wrong way? Wait until you get a ticket on a scooter. Oh, damn! We're back in a moment. Welcome back to the program. What do you think of the e-scooter craze? If you haven't seen them yet, they are all over American and European cities. There is a pilot project in Alberta, in Edmonton, in Calgary. And now they are here with a pilot project in the distillery. And what they are is they're electric scooters. There's no docking station. Basically, you just pick up the thing. You you scan it with your app, and away you go. It charges you by the amount of time that you have it. And then when you're done with it, you chuck it into the Don River. Well, hopefully you don't. Because that's one of the concerns about this kind of thing. Because that's the situation that has unfolded in many American cities that become cluttered, they're garbage, they're everywhere, the companies don't pick them up. They become a safety issue as well on sidewalks, narrow sidewalks. Like think about sections of the city where they have those giant planters. I, I live in the beach, and so on a sunny day in the beach... You know, you're walking down Queen Street between the dogs and the strollers. You're already pushed out onto the road. Now some clown in a scooter's coming by? Well, just this week, city councilor decided, well, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Councilor James Pasternak was on the Kelly Cotrera show and talking about, well, listen, if this expands this whole eater e-scooter thing... He wants them to be parked in a docking station. Forget about this. Put it where you want. You want the e-scooter? Then get the docking station. 
We want to make sure that if scooters are coming to Toronto, we do it right. That they, we do it in a regulated, regulated, safe environment where people can enjoy this mode of transportation, uh, but also be safe. I'm enjoying this mode of transportation. Mm-mm. What else has the good councillor got to say about the scooters? First of all, we want them upright and parked. Uh, Keep your scooter upright. uh, Looking at a docking system, Uh, I think that's the way to go, or we may be able to uh, harmonize it with our bike share program. Uh, But I must admit that docking is not their philosophy. Scooters. um, So we have to sit down with these companies. We have to make sure... Uh, that their business model can succeed, but we also have to make sure uh, that the residents uh, of Toronto are safe and respected. So let me just get this straight. The entire business model here is that you don't have to go to a docking station, and city council says, great, why don't you get docking stations? Civic government at its best, people. Listen, these things are coming. Don't make make no mistake, they are coming. You know, you don't think that other cities have said, well, maybe you should know they're here and they're coming. Priya Sam is a global news reporter and is covering this story for Global News. Hey, Priya. Good morning, Alan, or good afternoon, I should say. Well, I know you've probably been, been whipping around on a scooter. You probably have no sense of time. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So what what's the has there been any response from the uh, people at the scooter company that are trying to muscle this thing into the city? Well, yes. I mean, they say, you know, that if this ban becomes permanent for uh, on city streets, on basically any city property, um, obviously there will not be a place for e-scooters in this city. Um, but they did say, you know, they are they have already been in conversation with the city. They hope to keep talking to them. Um, but these uh, docking stations do sort of seem to be the big point of contention. Um, now, the mayor has responded as well, and he's been talking to mayors in other cities uh, that have launched uh, projects with e-scooters and some of them have been successful some not so much and the biggest concerns seem to be around safety and also uh, as you mentioned earlier just them being left basically anywhere uh, on sidewalks taking up space and making it hard for people with uh, mobility scooters or pushing a stroller or something like that to get by in sidewalks that are already very narrow. Here is the mayor talking about this very issue just a little while ago this morning. What we're doing in Toronto, I think typical of the way things are done, certainly under my leadership, is you'll do it carefully. And we will have our officials make recommendations to us knowing that those two issues, safety, including for people who are disabled and use the sidewalks and don't need to be confronted by a fast-moving electronic vehicle coming down the sidewalk, um, and also just general safety and the, uh, I'll call it the, the, the lack of clutter in our city. That is the mayor talking about how the city is approaching all of this. The the question has got to be, these things are useful, Priya. And they're, like they say, like like we heard from the council, there's going to be people who want this. So how is the city possibly going to be able to balance a demand on one side, which is clearly there, and then all of these rules and regulations it wants to put in? And those rules and regulations are a big barrier right now because right now uh, these e-scooters are not allowed on any city streets uh, in Ontario. Of course, they're not allowed on highways, anything like that either. Uh, So they will, they have planned on launching a pilot project that would allow them in the same places as bikes. 
Uh, that would mean, of course, a lot of municipalities have to go through this process of changing their regulations to allow this to happen. Uh, again, there's also the issue of the docking stations. Uh, and, you know, there is this kind of ongoing fight for space out there um, between groups who want more bike lanes and, you know, more, and now we're asking for more room on sidewalks for these e-scooters and there's limited space in a lot of areas. So it will be very interesting to see what the city does. Um, the other safety issue that there has been is uh, in Calgary, there were reported 60 scooter related visits to the emergency room within two weeks of their introduction there. So what kinds of training are people getting uh, before they start riding these e-scooters is another issue uh, that the city is concerned about as well. You know, I find this so interesting because really this is all about a seismic shift in the way we get around. And I actually saw a guy today on my drive-in who had an e-scooter. Now, it wasn't one of these, you know, Bird Canada ones. It was clearly a private thing. A guy, it was his. And he was on the bike path and he's cooking along. By the way, he had the, just the cutest little backpack. It was adorable. But that's, I, I digress. And the question is going to have to be between e scooters and pedal assist e bikes and all of the rest of these things, how do we integrate them into, as you were mentioning, an already narrow space that's got strollers and bikes and all the rest of these things? It is a, it is certainly a lot to think about and how you kind of please all of the groups. I mean, the benefit that the CEO of Bird Canada, uh, the company behind the pilot project, sort of keeps touting is the environmental benefits of it, uh, of using e-scooters, of course, because they're electric. Um, and he does point to other cities where where it works but those other cities uh some of them do have the infrastructure for it a lot of them do just allow them in the lanes where bikes are allowed as well and you know it does work in some places but those complaints about them being an eyesore them uh just being left anywhere on sidewalks and getting in the way that seems to be fairly consistent uh especially in cities that don't have these docking stations Uh, the other issue with if they do decide you know okay let's go ahead but with these docking stations well those projects then are going to take a lot more time to implement because getting those docking stations, uh, locations approved, and then getting them installed uh, would extend the time for uh, before the e-scooters would have the infrastructure to operate properly in the city, too. Mm, yeah, you have a, a new development, uh, a, a, an advance in technology. It's called the penny farthing. You just bring it over here and you dock it. Priya Sam, thank you so much as a Global News reporter, and you'll have a report tonight on Global News on that. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Isn't that insane? The whole point of the thing, the whole point is it doesn't have a docking station. And then the second it gets to city council, you know what it needs is a docking station. You Do you order the Uber Eats? Do you get the Foodora? You know, that's the other one of these sort of delivery deals. Maybe they'll show up in an e-scooter. Well, there's a battle right now between Fedora and its couriers that's going to be before the Ontario Labor Relations Board on Tuesday as the company pushes back against efforts to unionize. Couriers are independent contractors and not employees, say the company. Now, if successful, Fedora couriers could become Canada's first unionized app-based workforce. And that doesn't that have enormous implications on where we go forward. Chris Avalos is a postdoctoral fellow focusing on labor at the University of Toronto and joins me on the line. Hi, Crystal. We're working on that. 
While we do that, let me just tell you a little something, a little something, something about electric cars, because I want to tell you, we were talking about the electric uh, developments, and there is a big deal going on right now in Europe over this. This is, uh, just take this from the next segment here. You'll see this one. This one is Charles, Charles uh, from Frankfurt talking about electric cars. I want to just move to this real quick because we we're talking about the development of you know e-scooters and all these e-assist stuff. Well, listen to this about what the major car companies are planning in Europe. Daimler's Mercedes-Benz is showing off a long, sleek, battery-powered concept vehicle that could join the luxury car makers' lineup alongside its flagship sedans. The Vision EQS is the latest version of the company's series of battery vehicles, a key theme at this year's show. And BMW's marketing chief is saying giving customers a broad choice among internal combustion, hybrid and battery-powered cars is the right approach to a changing market. The headwinds buffeting the auto industry are certainly making themselves felt in Frankfurt. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Let's get back to that story about unionizing uh, app service and what that means. Christo Aveus is a postdoctoral fellow working, uh, looking at labor issues at U of T. Hi, Christo. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So what would it mean if something like an app-based service like Fedora or, goodness gracious, Uber would actually be able to unionize? Well, I think it would mean a, a lot of things. I think you would see a power shift. These, these like, 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 you know, employers often have a lot of power over their workers, but the apps specifically, because of the, 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 the divided nature of the workers, because the app has such a kind of algorithmic power, workers' ability to demand things, whether it's higher wages or whether it's more consistency, whether it's more security, could really change the nature of the employment. It could really, um, you know, offer them a greater voice in relating to the company directly and not just through the app. And I think that that could uh, sign for a big change. And it would mean a lot of things for the nature of work, because if we are to believe that the gig economy is you know, going to continue to grow, there's a chance that the unionization here could shift how we view, you know, uh, unionization in the new economy broadly defined. From those on the corporate side, we'll say that that will limit a company's nimbleness and ability to, to move in a changing landscape. We, we see that these are disruptor uh, companies and that being able to move quickly is vital. And sometimes when you're dealing with a union, that's not possible. Well, I mean, certainly they, 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 would, they would say that. And, I mean, companies have said that for time immemorial. But what we've recognized is that, you know, workers need security. And we often talk about in our, uh, in our economy how, you know, capital needs, you know, security and confidence to invest. Well, what our economy really does need is, is a base of workers with good wages and job security. And I think that the benefits to that for the economy are clear. And the benefits to that for employers are clear. I think many employers will realize that, well, yes, unions could, at least in a hypothetical sense, limit their uh, flexibility, limit their nimbleness. It often helps with job retention. It helps with, um, you know, dealing with conflicts before they boil over. Uh, It gives a more formalized way of dealing with discontent rather than having, you know, a thousand cats to herd. I think there's great value to having a union, at least in in the longer term. And not every employer will agree, of course, but, you know, other industries have survived and thrived and i mean if we're being honest the the gig economy is still in great flux and and you know i don't know if unionization is their their main concern i think a lot of them have difficulties being profitable uh due to 
you know, the, the general nature of the industry. I don't think it's their workers that are causing that. It is fascinating, and it is going to have a big impact going forward. Christo, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Isn't that interesting, too, because if it is the future of work, what does that mean for our ability to organize as workers and to insist on workers' rights? When we come back, I am going to provide for you a service. I am going to translate what your teenager is saying, specifically the teenager that just won the U.S. Open. She was on TV last night saying some stuff, and you think to yourself, I don't know what that means. I will translate it after the break. Welcome back to the program, News Making News. This hour, President Donald Trump said that he has fired his national security advisor, John Bolton. He did it on Twitter, saying that, quote, he had disagreed strongly with many of Bolton's suggestions. But just minutes later, Bolton, in his own tweet, said that, quote, he'd offered to resign Monday night and that Trump told him, quote, let's talk about it tomorrow. You can't fire me. I quit. No, let's talk about it tomorrow. I'll fire you. You get the sense that John Bolton may not go quietly. That is going to develop over the course of the day. Stay tuned for more on that. Other news I'm watching. Editors at campus newspapers across Ontario say government-mandated changes to tuition fees have forced them to look for creative ways to deal with the funding shortage. Sarah Crickle is the editor-in-chief of the Eye Opener at Toronto's Ryerson, my my alma mater. She says that for the first time, she and her counterparts at other student newspapers have to advocate for the value of their journalism while still reporting on the news. We are not the only ones in this boat. Every single publication that is out there in the quote-unquote real world and every single publication I've interned for, they're all dealing with this stuff. That is the editor-in-chief of the Eye Opener, which is the student newspaper at Ryerson. Schools are now asking students whether they want to continue to pay for non-essential student services such as school papers with their tuition. You may recall that the Ford government changed the rules so that these previously mandatory fees are now optional. And if you're a struggling student looking at the bottom line, you're going to say to yourself, is the student newspaper something I need to contribute to? Obviously, as a journalist... Someone who pays for, by the way, I pay for all the papers I get. I would say yes, but I certainly understand the need to cut back on what is already a prohibitively expensive exercise, namely getting a degree. As promised now, I will translate teenagers for you. Hey, listen, listen. Here's Bianca Andrescu on the Fallon show last night. It's been crazy. I've been feeling all the love from home and I, I truly Is there anyone you haven't it. heard from yet? Drizzy. Yeah. <laughs> Champagne Poppy, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Drake. Drake, if you're watching. Don't at me. Don't yeah, at yeah, me. yeah, no, please don't at me. Oh my gosh. What was any of that English? Any of it? You ask yourself. Well, here I am providing a service for you. I'm translating teenagers. Drizzy, this one you may know. That is the nickname for Drake, the Toronto rapper. All right, that one you got. 
Champagne Pappy. That is his Instagram at handle. Now, the last one, this one might have confused you. Don't at me. Please, for the love of for the love of everything, don't at me. From Urban Dictionary, I read to this to you here. Don't at me is a phrase on Twitter when you say something and you don't want people to respond directly to you. They can retweet, like, etc., but don't respond directly because you don't care what people have to say about your opinion. Don't at me. Drake, you can at me at any time. Also, Bianca. Ditto. A new study suggests that perhaps Bianca may be staring at her phone for too long, and that may cause trouble. This study of 1,500 Canadians shows that two-thirds of Canadians say their eyes get tired from looking at a screen. Are you among them? Digital eye strain is a condition caused by spending too much time in front of screens, not just social media. It is among the largest contributing factor towards something called dry eye. I got the dry eye, which occurs when your eyes don't produce enough tears. I'll tell you what, Let's find out more about it. Dr. Judy Parks is an optometrist at Ancaster Eye Clinic and joins me on the line. Doc, how are you? I'm good. How are you? How are your eyes? My eyes are awesome. Uh-huh. And I do, but I do suffer from dry eye like everybody else. A good rom-com will cure that. Oh, my golly. I'll tell you, it can. But, you know, watching Bianca play was unbelievable. <laughs> yes. I love that this is tied to her. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the cure other than just constant visine, and I'm looking at you potheads out there, constant visine to lubricate the eyes? Well, first of all, visine is probably the absolute wrong drop for dry eye. What? Yeah, it is. And it's it's sort of a misconception. Um, the underlying cause of dry eye is when the, the tear film isn't perfect. And it's, there's multiple reasons why that can happen. The problem with using visine is it's it's a drop that actually can dry the tears out, dry the eye out more. So what you need to use is you need to use a, an ocular lubricant that's actually designed to treat and lubricate the dry eye properly. So, and, and you're right, it has become, the new study that came out from Alcon has really shown how, how much there has been an increase in the prevalence of dry eye in Canada because um, dry eye is connected to digital digital fatigue and the study showed that people between the ages of 18 and 34 they're on their on their devices the digital device whether it's their phone a computer game playing games they're on it up to 13 hours a day and that's just that's unbelievable and and but it's it's a fact and in fact uh, people over the age of 65 are on their devices up to eight hours a day so the biggest problem is that when we're on devices, we don't blink as often. In fact, blinking drops from about once every five seconds down to once every 15 seconds. So the rate of blink, so the replenishment of tears on the surface becomes a problem. You add to that the fact that the, the air in an office or in your house is drier. We're getting into fall and winter soon. We're going to have trouble with humidity. So it just dries the tear film out. It, it evaporates off it, the surface of the Is eye. there really any danger to this other than irritation? 
There actually is. I mean, there can you can develop something called chronic dry eye, where it actually causes permanent damage to the surface of the eye. The biggest problem that people have is dry eye is I, I consider it to be like the great imposter because people can think they have dry eye or think they have a different eye condition. For example, um, if your eyes feel irritated and itchy, you think you've got an allergy. It's really dry eye. If you have um, if you have something like um, blurred vision, you think you need new glasses and stronger glasses. It's not that. What dry eye causes blurred vision. It can, it can affect your night driving. So it has so many different ways it can kind of show itself. Um, the, other, the other big area is, and people really confuse this, is that dry eye can cause your eyes to water. And there's lots of people who come in and, you know, when I examine their eyes and I tell them they are suffering from dry eye, they'll argue with me and say, no, my eyes are watery. Watery eyes is a sign of dry eye. So, like I said, it's sort of like the the great imposter of eye problems. Dr. Judy Parks is an optometrist at the Ancaster Eye Clinic talking about the prevalence of dry eye and the need for a proper ocular lubricant. Did I get that right? Yeah, you got that right. Yeah, yeah, and and again, um, I would encourage anybody who's suffering from any um, symptoms, and whether it be, um, you know, irritation, redness, blurred vision, all of these things, um, they should have a full eye exam to understand the underlying cause, because there's different drops that are designed for different types of dry eye. Because there can be different reasons you have it, and we're going to, when we when we talk about dry eye, we address things like um, um, helping you know with the the environment you're in. We suggest that people uh, take breaks. The twenty 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 rule we call call it every twenty minutes when you're on a, a digital device to take a twenty minute break or a twenty second break and look twenty feet away and blink. 20 times. So, yeah, so that's sort of one of the little tips. But on top of that, the ocular lubricant becomes important. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Doc. I got to let you you go, but don't at me about it, okay? Oh, no, I won't. All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate being on the program. When we come back, we are going to talk about daylight saving time, and our cousins on the left coast say they don't want it. We're going to check the facts. Is daylight saving time bad for you? Welcome back. A sign of the times in Las Vegas, Las Vegas, where an adult video and bookstore, which operated on the Las Vegas area's lone peep show, has now closed. So no more peep show in Vegas. End of an era. What's it being replaced by? Also a sign of the times? Cannabis store. Tell me you haven't thought about doing this. This is out of Seattle. A Washington motorist who police say used a black marker to try and make the vehicle tab sticker on his license plate appear current, got an A for effort, but a $228 ticket. Haven't you ever thought about that? What if I just go to the back here and I just make the mark on it and I just make this, I just make this a two or what? Apparently, got, he got caught for $228. Nice try. Here's your ticket. Daylight saving time. Are you ready for this thing to go away? Well, British Columbians say yes, there is a new report out on daylight saving time in British Columbia. And it says that 93% of the British Columbians who completed the survey indicated they would prefer to move to permanent daylight saving. In other words, it doesn't move one way or the other. You pick a time and that's that. No more spring forward, fall back, all that kind of stuff. Forget about it. Exactly. Well, the 
trouble, of course, is, is that British Columbia can actually do that, and maybe the Premier will say, well, sure. But the problem, as the Premier of British Columbia has indicated, is what about Washington State? What about Oregon? What, now you're going to drive over the border and it's an hour different six months out of the year? What if, What do you do with that? you got to all do it or you can't, right? Or maybe not. What does the research actually say about this? Because there's a growing push now to have this changed. Not only in British Columbia, but here in Ontario, where when the Ford government came in, it was asked specifically, would you consider this? Right now, not on the Ford government's agenda. That's at least according to spokespeople at the Premier's office. But there is significant research that showed negative public health effects come from the semi-annual time change. The conclusions, though, aren't universal. One of the most cited studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996 looked at crash data from 1991 and 1992, and what it found was an 8% jump in collisions on the Monday after the clock sprang forward in the spring, and a corresponding decrease about the same amount on the Monday after time fell back in the fall. Then, a review of 16 traffic studies by a doctor at Sunnybrook found that the increased risk of crashes after the spring time change in six of them, while three indicated decreased risk, pardon me, and seven said no, none at all. So you see there... Not conclusive. In 2008, a study by researchers in Stockholm found a 5% increase in heart attacks in the week after both spring and fall time changes. So heart attacks. Now it's not the cars, it's the hearts. But then German researchers, they looked at 25,000 heart attack cases in Germany And they found no significant change in heart attacks in the general population, only an increased risk among specific subgroups, such as men who previously had a heart attack. So you guys are screwed when the time changes, but everybody else is okay. Interesting. It's going to be something you're going to hear a lot more about, about, I, I, I think, not only just because of this thing in B.C., But I think there's going to be an increased push to have this changed. Because, you know, every time you change your internal body clock, that does something to you. And you know who's been all messed up with the internal body clock lately is my next guest. Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter who has been covering TIFF and has been out there on the red carpets. And you've been late into the night sometimes. Jamie, how are you? I'm doing good. I actually slept in... So almost 11 o'clock today. How's that feel? Felt good. <laughs> Felt good. Uh, yesterday you were hanging with, what, Matt Damon? Uh-huh. Matt Damon and Christian Bale at the uh, international premiere of Ford versus Ferrari. And I have to say, Matt Damon is such a nice guy, and so is Christian Bale. And they seem like they're genuinely friends. They're ribbing each other on the carpet and cracking jokes. It was a really lighthearted carpet, and I think the most fun one that I have been to Maybe in the last three years. Uh, interesting. I know you weren't on the Joker premiere, but Joaquin Phoenix just walked past everybody, didn't take any questions at all. Maybe yeah, not I, such a nice guy. Yeah, you know, we have seen that um, in his past, and we actually saw that this year. For example, uh, Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band was the opening Gala Night film. And Robbie Robertson, I mean, he's an Ontario staple. 
an Ontario star, Canadian star, and it was a film about him and that he narrates, and he did the same thing, just blew by everybody. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say about it. Sometimes they just aren't in the mood to talk. He did, however, do press at uh, the Venice Film Festival, and that was actually the world premiere. So the one last night was the North American premiere of The Joker, and uh, if you're a fan of comics, or even if you're not, if you're a fan of psychological thrillers, apparently this is the film to watch. It won the Golden Lion Award, and in the past, films that have won that have gone on to claim major Academy Awards, such as Best Picture, for example, with Roma. So, if you're a viewer, if the, some of our listeners are viewers of Global News, they've seen your reports, you're looking super glam there on the carpet, looking good. Uh, give me a sense of what really that is like. Like, Are you just up against the CP24 people just giving them an elbow to the face, or what? You know, when you first start out doing TIFF, you kind of feel that way. You're like, oh my gosh, I really have to get in there and be aggressive, be, be aggressive. But <laughs> I don't think you do. You make friends with the people next to you. Um, you make friends definitely with the PR people and uh, the TIFF people who are running the red carpet. And the more cordial it is, the better your experience will be. So it's not all glam like everybody thinks. You are standing around for quite some time. And then once the major stars, for example, last night when... Christian Bale and Matt Damon sort of walking the red carpet, it does get a little nutty. And actually the night previous to that was the premiere of The Goldfinch. That was Nicole Kidman's film. She actually decided to throw us for a loop, and we're all in a line. So we're in a numbered line, say like 1 to 70 in terms of media outlets. She went around the back and started at number 70. So all the people who were at the front were expecting to get her first were kind of scrambling, like, what do we do now? You zig when everybody else zags. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, and she went to outlets that normally would never, ever get an interview with her, which was kind of sweet, and I can actually really appreciate that. So now this is it. You're done on the TIFF coverage? You're, 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 that's it? You've, you've hung up your ballerina <laughs> shoes or your high heels or whatever? I have for this year. I'm taking a little bit of uh, early vacation, but I'm passing the torch onto Global News reporter uh, Camille Caramali, and actually tonight he's going to be at the world premiere of the Harriet Tubman biopic called Harriet. Um, and it is supposed to be phenomenal as well, so make sure you tune in. Do you give him any fashion tips on what to wear? <laughs> for him or for, for me? <laughs> no, just for him, because you've been looking so... I mean, because you got to you got to dress the part when you're down there, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, the snazzier, the better. The more outlandish, the better. If you, can get, <laughs> if you can wear a pattern or a bright color and get the attention of a star, power to you. Okay. Uh, Jamie Barocker, enjoy your time off. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. I'm on my way to Don Mills, ladies and gentlemen, for that TV thing I do. You can join me on the tube at 5.30, simulcast on this radio station beginning at 6. We'll see you again tomorrow at noon.